and you go, I'm going to do this big advertising campaign and we're going to have a gorilla playing the drums to a Phil Collins track and we're not going to show the products, right? Everyone would laugh you out of the room. They Honestly, they would just, li- you'd lose your job, right? Hey, everyone. Today, we're talking with John Evans. You might know him from uh, the podcast, The Uncensored CMO. But as he said, he also has an actual job as Chief Customer Officer at System One. And we take a deep dive into the power of emotion in advertising. I believe the real value of System One as a framework, but also tracking, is in showing that things that don't make sense have huge business effects. So buckle up and let's talk branding. Before we dive in, some uh, exciting news. Together with Hola Brief, I developed a brand audit template for creative agencies. In my own experience of working with existing brands, I think one of the most overlooked but powerful services is a brand audit. It allows you to get a good idea of the strengths and weaknesses of your or your client's brand and start shaping the future of the brand from a solid foundation. You can check out my custom and easy-to-use brand audit template I developed with the Hola Brief today and discover many more strategic exercises and templates to collaborate with you and your clients and create kick-ass briefs. Visit holabrief.com slash Steph or find the link in the show notes. That's holabrief.com slash Steph. Now let's get back to the podcast. Hey, everyone. Hey, John, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. Good to be on. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited to have a fellow podcaster on the show. Um, but for the people who don't know John Evans, could you quickly introduce yourself? I know it's like podcaster talks to podcaster. Who knows where this is going to go? Um, I do have a real job as well, though. So, um, you know, by day, I'm the chief customer officer at a company called System One. And we test advertising, we test innovation, we test brands, and we give Uh, basically give feedback from the people that matter, which are the people that actually buy. So we try and represent the feelings of those people that are seeing your advertising or experiencing your brand or trying out your innovation. And we tell you what they actually think, because, you know, as Mark Ritson tells everybody, we are not the consumer. So, uh, you know, the first thing to do is understand what they think. So that's my day job. And then by night, I disguise myself as the uncensored CMO, which is basically an excuse for me to talk to people I like and find out stuff for free, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're we're very much aligned on that part. But uh, I I really, the the title was always a bit triggering to me. It was like, why why is it the uncensored CMO? Of course, you have these very interesting guests and and very good conversations, but there is a fun story behind it. Could, Could you share it? Yeah, totally. What, what, my my background is in um, marketing, and and I've been a marketing director. I've been a CMO client side, and um, it very unusually. So I spent twenty five years doing marketing client side, and then about four years ago, I I made the change to. In fact, I joined System One, but I made the change to agency side, and it's really different. And one of the um, one of the first things that I experienced was that my, my first ever. Uh, assignment, if you like, with uh, System One was to go to Can Lions. Now, the funny thing is, as a client, I've won Can Lions, but I've never been invited. Like, I don't, this is something really weird. The agencies never invite their clients along. I think they want to keep it a secret because they're having too much fun. <laughs> and, like, if they knew where the money's going, you know, they'd never buy us, you know, they'd never buy from us again. Something. Anyway, I got to go to Can Lion. And at the time, I was thinking about starting a podcast. And it's funny, actually, the reason I was thinking about it was I was employed by System One as their CMO to basically network with other CMOs and and sell System One. And I I had to confess to them at some point. They said, I don't actually know many CMOs. And they're like, what? You're a CMO. Surely you know CMOs. But you don't because like you're too busy doing your job, right? You're too busy talking to customers or suppliers or agencies. Anyway, so I had this idea. Let's start a podcast and then I can meet lots of CMOs and talk to them about being CMOs. And I was out anyway, I was out in Can Lion and um, I got lucky. Actually, I was interviewed by CNBC on the beach, right, about my thoughts on advertising at Can. And they were fascinated. Oh, here's a real CMO. He's going to tell us what he thinks. Anyway, 
I, I, of course, because at that point I wasn't employed by anybody, I could say whatever I wanted. And um, at the end of the recording, the guy, James, who was the interviewer, just said to me, John, you're the first uncensored CMO I've spoken to all week. And I've spoken to a lot of CMOs. And it triggered something in me. I know you said that at the beginning, because what I know about CMOs, having been one myself, is when you're representing the company at a senior level, you're not allowed to say what you think, right? Mm. This is because, you know, if you're working for a big multinational company, they're very protective of their brand. And everything I said publicly when I worked as a CMO was actually prepared in advance. And in fact, I got media trained by the BBC, right? So the actual BBC media trained me it, how not to answer questions. I, I, what I mean by that is like, I would be trained if you ask me a difficult question, I'll be trained to go, Steph, thank you for asking that question. I'm really pleased you said that because it's the perfect opportunity for me to talk about my new packaging, you know, or something like that, <laughs> which has no relation at all to whatever it is you said. So, you know, I, I know that all the CMOs at Can Lines are there not telling you the truth. So I thought, well, I wouldn't it be called on a podcast called Uncensored CMO where we talk about what really goes on in marketing. That was the idea. Yeah, I love that. And, and, I agree to like I. Uh, it's interesting to see. I I came from agency world and I went in house like just a a year ago. Actually, one year. Just my anniversary as an in house marketer. And and it's inter- interesting to see how people working in house like they're more isolated from. I'm guessing some kind of marketing community. Also in part because you have your you know internal community in the company. But it, it's interesting to see. And I think it's a. Uh, admirable that people like you are trying to you know build those bridges across people because i I have actually a lot of respect for cmos and and marketing teams in-house i don't know if you share the same feelings but uh i i do and and look this is this is the breaking news part of it because i've spent my entire career in manufacturing in fmcg as Mm -hmm. a marketer you spend your time in the factory, you spend your time with the finance team, you spend your time with suppliers d- deciding on labels, you spend your time with Tesco, you know, trying to negotiate a listing for your new products. Mm. Um, you know, marketers in businesses, manufacturing businesses, as I was, you don't spend your time, you spend a very, not much of your time is spent with agencies, or the marketing world kind of thing. So actually, you're quite detached. So and what what I realized is, um, how few marketing people within companies actually even understand marketing or any of the theories of marketing or any of the books written about marketing. It, it astonished me how little knowledge of marketing there, there is inside businesses. And that was my job. I just thought, well, look, if I can do a podcast and we can talk about the theory and practice of marketing, hopefully I can help to you know, add a little bit of experience and knowledge to marketers out there that are trying to do a good job. Yeah, I love that. And and I think, you know, one of those those things that are often like let's say, well, ignore or not talked about in 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 marketing departments are things like what what system one is talking about, you know, the the unconscious part of how people perceive uh, advertising and how they interact with that the 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 fame feeling fluency, the, these ideas and that's exactly, I think, the, the kind of concepts we need to think about marketing more. So I, I'd love for you to maybe unpack that just a little bit, like what is system one and like what is the big idea behind what, mm. what you're doing there? Well, it, it comes down to this. Our job is to is to provide the rational case for emotion. And the reason we do that is basically because if you're like me, you probably work in a business that is run by accountants, right? Let's be honest. It's run by people that want to know the return on everything, right? Everything has to be documented. Now, when you're a CMO and you look around the room at your other C-suite colleagues, all of them have got data, right? So all of them have got the factory, what the factory made yesterday. How many, you know, how many units of product did you sell? You know, how much is in the warehouse? How much margin was made yesterday? How much is sold on promotion, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Marketing doesn't have that that same ability to kind of quantify and it's a problem and the reason it's a problem is basically down to uh, Daniel Kahneman who wrote this book Thinking Fast Thinking Slow because what he understood and what he has helped the world to understand is that 
we don't make decisions in a rational way as human beings. So actually, he calls it the system one and system two, the sort of mm -hmm. different operating systems that, uh, you know, uh, work within our brains. And that actually a lot more of the decisions we make are instinctive and intuition. They're not necessarily rational. In fact, we're more likely to post-rationalize the decision we make than, you know, than, than uh, pre-rationalize. And um, I think Rory Sutherland had this brilliant quote, actually, which is, you know, system one is the Oval Office and system two is the press office. And the problem is we think the press office is driving and it's not. The press office is merely responding to the Oval Office. And when you understand that, that actually humans make decisions based on their system one, you realize that emotion is actually the most important thing to measure when it comes to you know, do I like this product? Will I buy this product? Do I like this advertising? Will I buy this advertising? So what we found is the question, how do you feel about it, is a much more accurate question than what do you think? Because if I said to you, Steph, you know, what do you think about this particular brand? You would give me an answer that doesn't necessarily tell me whether you buy it. it you know, you'd go, well, yeah, it's red, it's it's a can, it's, it's fizzy brown liquid or whatever, and it's got lots of sugar in it, right? If I say, how do you feel about it? That question would instantly tell me how committed you are, how likely you are to buy and so on. So basically what we do at System One is we spent many years developing ways of asking questions to an audience that uncover their real motivation uh, and what they really think and feel. And the amazing thing is it actually predicts how people go on and behave. And the reason that's important to come sort of full circle back to my boardroom position is if you're stood in the boardroom and all your colleagues have got the data and you go, I'm going to do this big advertising campaign and we're going to have a gorilla playing the drums to a Phil Collins track and we're not going to show the products, right? Everyone would laugh you out of the room. They Honestly, they would just, lit, you'd lose your job, right? As a marketer, <laughs> yeah. you lose your job. Now, this is the thing is actually having a, you know, having a gorilla drumming to Phil Collins to sell chocolate might just be the best thing you can do. But you, you can't prove it without system one. And so what we do is we give the tools to marketers to help prove, you know, advertising and, and so on. So actually what we find is that um, we're very popular with creative agencies because creative agencies know all this. They're, 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 they're brilliant. You know, their instincts are all properly geared. You know, they're, they're, they're tuned into, you know, fame building and emotion and storytelling and stuff like that. But by the time it gets to the boardroom and you're in front of a bunch of accountants, then you need system one to translate it, you know, and put the rational case together for you. Yeah, I love that. I mean, there's a lot to tap in here. So I'll, I'll try to uh, get, not to get too excited and, and take it one at a time. But I think the first thing I'd love to know, and we don't have to get super technical, but just the, the gist of it, how do you then actually, you know, measure that well, unconscious or that emotional feeling? Is it just asking people and what are you asking? How do you make sure that you tap into that? Yeah, no, and, and this is the bit we've perfected actually. And, and, and some of it will be surprising, some of it won't be. There's a number of techniques we use. I mean, firstly, we ask people to tell us how they're feeling. Now, a, a lot of people go, well, that's a bit weird because don't you have to think about your feelings and therefore it's not instinctive. So isn't it better just to have a camera and use a camera to sort of, you know, read the face and so on? But actually, cameras and artificial intelligence are not very good at recognizing human emotion because you don't always re you know, reflect how you feel inside. And you certainly don't reflect how strong the emotion is. So we just ask people which emotion best describes how you're feeling at this point. We also often use time pressure. So a lot of our surveys only give you three seconds to make the answer. And that's because your instinctive preference, your first answer is the correct one. Once you think about it, you post-rationalize it, your system two kicks in. So we often use techniques like time pressure. We also measure um, intensity of emotion as well, because intensity is incredibly important because the more strong, I mean, I know this sounds obvious, but the stronger the feeling, the more likely that feeling is to translate into action. So we, we use, you know, very simple survey-based questionnaires, but we've, we've perfected the art of which questions to ask. We ask, you know, what do you associate um, with this product uh, we also ask what's the reason for the emotion you feel and and those questions we, we kind of use the the three why techniques of saying well why do you feel that why why do you feel that and why do you feel that so we try and get up we try and uncover we call it mind reader but if you ask three whys you actually get to the root understanding 
of what's driving somebody. So the stated emotion usually up top is usually surface level. But when you go down a few layers, you often uncover the real motive. And so what we do is we bring those things together. So if, if you're testing an ad with System 1, we'll tell you overall how many people felt happiness, but we'll tell you why they felt happiness and the underlying reason and what the happiness led to in terms of association. So I felt happy because it reminded me of holidays and the association I have with holidays is fun, right? So mm. that's, that's an example of what we do. And that, that gives, and we can do that very quickly as well. So when you're developing uh, new packaging or you're developing some creative or you want to measure your brand versus your competitors, we use these techniques basically to reveal how people think. And back to your fame, feeling and fluency uh, that you said yep. earlier, um, that's the sort of headline. I suppose if you were to sum up the philosophy of system one, it's that the more people have heard of you, the more likely you are to be bought, the stronger and better the emotion that people have towards you, the more likely you are to be bought. And the speed at which you come to mind, that's the fluency thing, is is also important. And those three things, when you put them together, explain about 85% of a brand's size. So we've done lots of correlations looking at, you know, fame, feeling, and fluency combined, you know, uh, explain about 85% of, of a brand, um, which is, you know, which, which is significant. So that, or has a correlation, I shouldn't say 85% explained, but an 85% correlation, which suggests that it explains a lot of, why the brand is as successful as it is. Yeah. I mean, it almost sounds like you have the, you know, the holy grail. You you can basically predict whether ads are going to work or not, or is it not that simple? Well, of course it depends. And it's not that simple. No, you're absolutely right. It's, it's a good question to ask actually, because what I find actually, and, and the challenge we sometimes get back, and I do understand this is because we've worked hard to simplify the message People think it's very easy. Now, of course, it's not easy, but also, you know, having been a marketer myself and new system one myself, um, lots of things happen in life, right? So your sales are dictated by the weather. Your sales might be dictated by your physical availability. It might be dictated by the amount of promotion that's going on that week. So there are many, many things that come in, you're, you know, it, not least your spend, right? You know, if you've got a lot of money uh, versus little money, you're going to have a bigger impact, right? Yeah. So there are many things that come into it. And so, what we're, we're not saying that the emotional response to advertising explains everything about, you know, how your campaign is going to do. But it does explain a lot. And, and in fact, what we've noticed is if you look at just share of voice and look at market share, there's a loose correlation. But if you look at share of voice and emotional response, there's a much, much stronger correlation. Mm -hmm. So all the other factors like pricing and distribution obviously come into it. But what we're saying is that as far as it's possible, to isolate the creative impact, we've been able to isolate it. Now, and, you know, again, I think um, a marketer's ability to judge an ad is probably no better than 50-50. And I'm, I'm sure, I think Ehrenberg Bass have actually done this study. Uh, Nicole Hartnett was on, was on my show and we talked about this, but it's almost the flip of a coin in terms of a marketer's ability to judge their own advertising. And if we can move that to 60-40, then, and they get more right than wrong, then, you know, then that's, that's a good thing. Yeah, and I suppose there's also just like things in there that you can take to improve the ad. For example, if it gets a bad fluency rating, well, okay, let's put more distinctive assets yeah. in it or make it more clear. So these types of things can still improve the ad. I, I, I had this one, well, it's not, it's not a question first, like when I discovered the whole, you know, Byron Sharp, mental availability, Ehrenberg Bass Institute philosophy, I was kind of like a bit, you know, disenchanted by this idea of, okay, this whole meaningful stuff needs to, you know, get out of the window. It's just be distinctive, be as much available as you can. And then when I encountered the, the whole idea of system one, fame, feeling, and fluency, it kind of made this connect between what I already knew, you know, about branding and creativity, and this other idea of, of what Byron Sharp and, and and I'm wondering like, do you think that that the idea of you know mental availability, this almost dry idea of I, I think it's most correlated to what you're saying is fame building. How does feeling mix into that world? And is there yeah. maybe something there? And I love I love that question actually because I've not I've not tried to connect the two in quite yeah. such a way before, but I, I I really like your question. Um, I think the answer is so. What what Byron has brilliantly done, and I'm an enormous fan. In fact, as a marketer, I've I've uh, when his book came out in 2010, 
um, he came over and did a talk to the marketing team that I was running at the time. So um, I was a very early adopter of his approaches and I've used it time and time again. So, yeah. and I've bought over a hundred copies actually over the years, you know, for, for my team. So I'm, I'm very, very, for, in, uh, I know, I know. I'm go south. <laughs> although he, although he's opened my eyes to the benefit of light users, I'm quite definitely an Ehrenberg Bass heavy user. So there you go. So hopefully that counts for something. But anyway, no. So I, so what he's documented is is incredible, and and the fact that you know the size of your brand is down to your you know your mental availability and your physical availability. The question I think that System One helps to answer is how do you create mental availability? Because mental availability is like the outcome, isn't it? So it tells us how the brand grew, but you know, what, how do I make it grow to get to that point? You know, what, what are the secrets? And I think mental availability, as he brilliantly describes, you know, uh, you know, for example, memory structures, you need to be remembered, don't you? And I think what fluent devices do or fluency that we use at System One is we start to show people the techniques and ways of creating the fluency that then result in, uh, then result in mental availability, and also in the, the reason emotion is important is that the, the emotion correlates very closely to our attention and our memory. So yep. you know, it's the old Maya Angelou quote: "No one remembers what you said; they remember how you feel." So going back to mental availability, if you can make people feel something, they're more likely to remember you, and they're more likely to, you're more likely to come to mind quickly in the buying occasion. And that's really the connection between why emotion is important because actually it helps create the memory and, and and well create the attention that then creates the memory that then means that mental availability is improved so that's probably the way that the the, the, the things connect together that makes total sense uh, i'm i'm wondering also like i think you know one of the things we we see a lot is obviously the examples we talk about is usually big brands lots of you know uh system one uh, content we see is about these you know aldi ads and and uh john lewis ads which is normal because those are the ads we all know but i think one of you know the biggest struggles is marketers and small organizations maybe even more in you know in b2b context we want to build fame but basically we we don't have the money to do big reach and i'm guessing you know part of it of the answer there is well yes then creativity is even more the lever to push but why is it then that we are so obsessed with you know developing educational content and rational messaging like what's what's wrong there oh i love that question it's great it's funny actually because you reminded me a couple of things firstly when byron presented my first question for him is what do you do if you're a small brand because yeah. that's the problem right because you know you're outgunned by big brands that can buy more mental availability and they can buy more physical availability. So how do you do that? And the second thing, uh, I had Adam Morgan on, um, he was my guest number two on the show, and he wrote a book called Eat the Big Fish. Mm, and Eat yeah. the Big Fish is like, you probably know it, don't you? It's like the textbook. It's 20 years old now, actually, but it's the textbook on challenger brands. And I absolutely love it. But what made me smile with Adam was I said to Adam, you know, what, who do you mostly work for? And he said, I mostly work for big companies, <laughs> teaching them the secret of, of little companies. I said, why is that? And he said, well, the big companies can afford to pay me. The small companies can't. So, you know, there's, there's, there's definitely a truism in there. But Steph, you're absolutely right. Because, you know, and actually I've spent more of my career as uh, managing small brands than I have big brands. Now, obviously we've got the same thing at System One where we're mostly employed by big brands, helping them make their big brand advertising go further and be more effective. But what do you do if you're a small brand? It's a really good question. And I think that's where, you know, you have to, you have to be more creative. Now, th now what I will say actually, one of the massive advantages when you're a small brand is agility, right? Mm. You can jump on a trend, you can respond to social media, you can, you know, you can create something so much more quickly. I mean, I remember I, I went from a big company where our standard launch window was 18 months and I joined a small company and our launch window was three months. Yeah. And it was amazing, right? So I, I could, what I did in that situation is I created a few world firsts. I mean, within soft drinks. I mean, I'm not saying I, you know, cure cancer, right? I didn't do that. <laughs> but, but you know, within my category, I did a number of world firsts, right? Because I was able to. Now, what that meant was, is that because I did things that were surprising, 
um, I actually got um, people's, I got an emotional response from people because they said, oh, I wasn't expecting that. Buyers within my category were like, you know, going, oh, well, well, we must stock your brand because you're doing something genuinely that's, you know, that's ahead of ahead of the game. And so what you have to do is you have to build mental availability, but the tactics you use are different. There's no point just having a, a small advert on TV rather than a big advert from the big brands. You have to do it differently. So I, I think the end goal is still physical availability, immense availability, the tactics you use uh, are usually more creative, they're usually faster, and they're usually probably riskier because you're looking to do something surprising, novel, challenging, record-breaking. You know, you try and find things that are going to get you talked about and get you noticed in a way that a standard advert wouldn't. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And, and, you know, I get this question a lot then, like that's the typical follow-up question is, well, science tells us to be more creative, it will be more effective, you'll get more rich. But then the next question is, but how do we convince our board or, you know, our managers that creativity will actually deliver a return? Because, you know, performance marketing and all that is nicely set up and attribution works. How do we how how do we make kn- the argument? Or is I it know. possible? Well, no, I, I think it is possible actually. And when people get it, they really get it. And I, I think there's a, there's a, there's a couple of things that come in here. So firstly, the window in which within which we measure something matters. The reason the reason digital attribution is is so attractive is you get an immediate response, mm-hmm. and it's like a drug, right? So if you're a marketer and you can you can I mean by by the way. You know, we're both podcasters. We both check our downloads, right? So it it, it it's a drug. So it, every morning I go and click on the uh, click on my transistor and go, how many people downloaded yesterday? And if it's a good day, I get, I'm happy. If it's a bad day, I'm less happy, right? So <laughs> you know, it is. It's it's actually a drug. It's a kind of drug, isn't it? So th- this is the issue of performance marketing: is because the window is so narrow, you see every spike and every change and every variable, and you can drill down into it in finite detail. The, the problem becomes advertising is not designed in that way. Advertising is designed, if you go back to fame, feeling, fluency, the reason to advertising is to make your brand more famous, make people feel, um, you know, stronger emotions for you and to be remembered more. Now, in any one day, you know, maybe 1% of your target audience might see you, think about you, buy you, right? So, and if you look, if you're only looking at performance marketing, you'll just see that 1% behavior. You won't see the 99% that are forming an impression of you and thinking about you. So the reason your question is so important is the problem is that we've got hooked on a short-term drug. It's a bit like price promotions in supermarkets, right? Mm. Is that the reason, you know, manufacturers love doing it is they get this adrenaline high when their sales got four times. But the trouble is when you blend it out over a year, you realize your sales are actually flat. All you've got are these spikes going up and down. It's like this kind of constant graph, like the hospital, it's like a hospital, you know, hospital beat thing, isn't it? You're only measuring, you're measuring the the pumping of the blood. You're not measuring when the blood comes back into the heart. So, Mm. and that's the mistake. So what the reason brand building is important, the reason system one exists is we help to measure the long-term impact of the advertising you do, which will determine whether you're successful in the long term, that will get you out of that short term performance drug. So, you know, both are important. And, you know, you talk to Les Burnett and Peter Fields, they will tell you that the long and the short of it, the most important word in that title was the word and. And mm. it's the it's it's the it's the bit that people forget is that you need to do both. And and my my job at System One really is 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 again to give people the tools, particularly to be able to make to be able to measure what might happen in the long term and and get people on that drug because if you get on that drug as well as the performance drug the chances are you'll be getting the mix about right yeah that i think that's very fascinating one i don't know if you have anything specific on this but i i don't know for example how expensive uh, system one is to hire but i know you know like brand tracking and stuff is often too expensive for for small brands do you have any like tips or tricks for people that do want to in somehow do this long-term brand tracking, fame yeah. tracking stuff? Well, we're incredibly good value. I mean, you'd obviously expect me to say that. I'm paid to say that. So just to, <laughs> just, just to get that out there, you know, my employer is System One. So look, you'll, you'll have to judge that, you know, however you like. Um, I mean, in, in pounds, I mean, euros and pounds are fairly similar these days. So it's probably yeah. not a lot different. But, you know, it's about... Six thousand pounds to do a, a f- proper 
test of your ad. So for £6,000, what you'd understand is long-term potential, short-term potential fluency. You'd also understand um, what we call face trace, which is the second-by-second emotion that people feel while they watch your ads. We'd understand the reasons for emotion. You'd get 150 comments on your ad. So it bit like a focus group. You'd get people going, the people that were angry, you'd know why. The people that are happy, you'd know why. Uh, you'd know the intensity of emotion. You'd know um, the associations created. Even my colleague Orlando wrote this insanely clever book on advertising about the left and the right-hand brain. And we even go into whether your ad has features associated with the left-hand side of brain, more task-orientated, right-hand side, more emotional. So, you know, for not a lot of money, you can get an enormous amount of feedback on an ad. But the the, the, the key is it it predicts or at least gives you a direction of, you know, of where your, your brand might do in the long run. And that is important because it means you can, not only can you improve it, which is great, but you can take that data back to your business and give mm. them the, the kind of rational case for emotion. And it helps you to get more money signed off. It helps avoid waste in terms of backing the wrong, you know, backing the wrong creative. It helps also with your agency conversations. So like, you know, let's say you and I have done opposite roles, right? You've, you've gone agency client, I've gone client agency, right? You know this, but amount of debates you have between, you know, client perspective going, well, I've got to make sure my 15,000 reasons to believe are very clearly stated in this, you know, <laughs> and you as an agency go, just tell them a good story, make them feel something, John, yeah. come on, make them feel something, you know, those are the kind of debates you have, right? Um, but the, the test allows you to navigate those debates without falling out, because you, you can actually get a bit of data that, you know, helps you kind of make an informed decision that, you know, stops wasting time going back and forwards, you know, trying to, you know, uh, you know, decide between you. Yeah, I love that. Maybe maybe I'll I'll take you up on that uh, after the show. <laughs> I mean, I do want to do some uh, some tracking. I would love to see that data. Let's, oh, but uh, oh, by the way, so you did. By the way, so quickly, you did say tracking. Uh, so that was testing before. Yeah, testing we also have. Yeah, we have a test your brand, which is the equivalent for ongoing. So mm. we it, similar amount of money, but um, basically what we'd do there is we would ask similar questions, but more of the brand, not the particular mm. campaign. So how do you feel about the brand? why do you feel that what associations what characteristics you know come to mind when you think about yeah. this brand are you aware have you bought those those kind of questions so we do that as well and um, we also do that for people that have seen the ad not seen the ad and it allows you to connect the two things together right mm. and what we know which is lovely is that because the fame feeling fluency tracker which is what we have um we, we, we we've done so many that we can almost predict whether you've got a growing brand or a declining brand, because mm. we know the shape, it sounds a bit weird, but brands that grow are brands that have got more feeling than their market size, yeah. right? Uh, brands that are declining have got a more fluency than their market size. So for example, an iconic old brand, everyone's heard of and no one buys, will have massive fluency and low feeling, right? Mm-hmm. brands that are up and coming will have massive feeling and low fluency right because you know one's a lag measure one's a lead measure so even you know we can even predict based on that you know whether you're going to going up or going down yeah that's super interesting it's like uh the idea of ease of but then uh access yeah i don't excess know feeling. of emotion <laughs> that's it excess feeling yeah, and, that, that was yeah. Just, that, in fact what you said that's how we describe it in our reports is we actually give you a measure of excess feeling because excess feeling is is a very very good early stage prediction of whether your brand is uh, in good health or not. Mm, yeah, I love that, and I, I'm I'm guessing you know one of the other things for for people that are not uh, allowed or not able to do actual testing or tracking, one of the other ways to to learn from this stuff is by looking at all the other ads that have been made, and I'm wondering if you have like maybe. I don't know, top three, top five things that you see, like what makes for a, a good, you know, effective ad and maybe yeah. even a, a piece of communication doesn't have to be in that for that matter. But No, you're quite right. I mean, we, we've we've tested uh, on our database, we've got 82,000 ads um, in total, including customer ads and customer innovation, customer rounds. We've tested 160,000. Um, so we've got a lot. We've got a lot to go on. There, there are, I mean, we've got, 
five general principles, which are probably the best way of doing it. So the five things that we know contribute to performance um, of long term, I should say, long term performance uh, are these five. So what one is the obvious one, which is emotion. So the more positive emotion is created, the, the, the more likely you are to be remembered and, and have long term success. Um, the second thing, actually, is story arc. And this is where our face trace is quite interesting because because we can measure second by second how people are reacting. What we can do is translate that into story arc. So I have felt happy here, sadness here, surprise there. I felt nothing there. And basically, there is a certain way of telling a story that works. You know, if you think about it, we've had a million years of evolution as, as, as human beings. And we've grown up telling stories, you know, from the cave days of don't go over there because there are some lions or, you know, the elephants are, you know, down that path or whatever. You know, we tell each other stories, don't we, to warn us, to make us smile, to build connections. And so we also know the best way to tell a story. And so the second thing is, is the way you tell a story is really important. The third thing is uh, soundtrack. And actually what we've we've done lots of studies looking at the power of sound and actually sound can change how you feel and and can make a massive difference to whether you're remembered, whether you notice certain things or not. And what we often now, again, I've made loads of advertising in my career. And the problem is the soundtrack's usually at the end. You usually do that, you know, you usually kind of like do the whole process. And right at the end, you go, oh, yeah, we've got to pick a, you know, a, a, you know, a sort of a library soundtrack. Yeah, I know. And actually, you'd be better off starting with the soundtrack, almost kind of, you know, having that as your inspiration and the other thing is we can show you whether investing in a well-known artist or you know or a familiar soundtrack is actually a good investment or not because we can test with and without it and see mm. what difference that makes so that so sound would be number three um number four would be character so one of the things that uh, again this is evolutionary is that human beings are very well tuned to pick up um, you know, illicit communication. So glances, expression, reactions, all those things. And actually, uh, our emotions regulated by how other people feel and, and what we see in other people. So we often advise and coach um, business you know, advertisers on how to create characters. And also characters don't have to be human. So one of the most powerful things actually are, are animated characters or animal characters, you know, um, because they're more surprising and they're more distinctive. Um, which actually brings me to my final point, which is the fifth thing we do when we look at advertising is is fluency, which I know is, is kind of a phrase that we created at System One, Orlando created at System One. And it basically means the thing that comes to mind quickly and easily for that brand. And it, it can be a fluent device could be like a, a familiar scene. So in the UK, there's this great advertiser called Specsavers, and they have this yeah. lovely, clever, you know, should have gone to Specsavers, and they, they dramatize, you know, what happens if you don't wear glasses. It's a very simple idea, but it's become so familiar that people will now joke if someone sort of bumps into a door, they'll just go, huh, should have gone to Specsavers. So that that phrase has become fluent, I guess, associated with Specsavers. And therefore, what we, the real, and this is probably like, Jedi master level kind of skill set here, but the best advertisers are those that create fluent devices that are associated. So, I mean, maybe the, one of the most iconic ones would be Coca-Cola at Christmas, have a mm. holidays are coming um, advert. Now in there, they've got a lorry, they've got the Coca-Cola red, they've got Santa, even Santa is associated with Coca-Cola. There's a tune that's familiar. There's a song. I mean, the whole thing, is basically one big fluent device for Coca-Cola. And as a consequence, um, people have become familiar with it and uh, and they, they associate lots of good things. So every time Coke do that ad, they get a five star on our system. I mean, it's the cheapest way to a five star is have something 25 years old that everyone loves, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I'm a sucker for mascots as I'm working on something there. So... I'm happy to see it's a uh, part of part of the 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 lineup or the you know the top top elements of a good ad. Um, I have a couple of questions. I think one what what's uh, interesting to me is I think we've I don't know if you see this uh, way. I think you're looking more at ads than me. So correct me if I'm wrong. But it almost feels like with this rise of purpose we had in the last decade or so that we've also seen a lot of ads that try to bring a more serious note sometimes even you know a bit a bit sad or try to inspire or empower people and and the first thing you mentioned was 
emotion, but not just emotion, positive emotion. Yeah. And I'm wondering, like, is it the are the best ads and communication making people feel happy, or is it just about making people feel intense emotions, whatever that is? That's a brilliant question. And and actually, Orlando has done the research on it, which is amazing. So he spent he looked at 15 years of data. Uh, he looked at he used the IPA database of award winning ads, the same database Les and Peter used. Um, when they wrote the long and the short of it, and what he noticed in it is that the, uh, the 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 most successful case studies, the most successful adverts in terms of driving market share gains, when you adjust for media spend, so he did he he adjusted them all so they were kind of media spend neutral, were the ones that created the most happiness, and it validates the Daniel Kahneman insight from thinking fast, thinking slow, which are things that you feel good about, you're more likely to buy, and that's a positive feeling. Mm. So. In the long term, the, the 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 correlation between positive emotions towards something and the, the brand scale is very very close. So the answer is so what in in the algorithm that Alana created, positive emotions are given a lot more weight than negative emotions. And in fact, surprise would be the second most powerful emotion because mm. surprise captures our attention. So so when you're thinking about an ad, you know, surprising people. Making them happy at the end is the most important thing. It's the peak end rule we call, which is actually yep. the feeling at the end is the one that's remembered. So uh, peak end, peak happiness at the end. Surprise is a good thing to use early. And actually sadness has a role. And the reason sadness has a role is, is if you talk, if you look at story arc, so we, you know, I was saying our number two thing was story arc. Um, it's, it's, it's helpful sometimes to bring some sadness into a story in order to create an even bigger happiness at the end. Now, it's not you don't have to do it, but it's quite an effective way. So, you know, having some jeopardy in a story is actually keeps our attention on what's going to happen because we're not quite sure how it's going to end. So it's not that negative emotions don't have a role. Well, obviously, you don't want to make people angry, right? So you don't want to make people like angry or contempt or disgusted. That generally doesn't help, but it, they, they are useful emotions if, they're 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 managed carefully the tip we give people is if you're going to use negative emotion make sure you resolve that emotion by the end and it's harder to do than you think so what often happens is you might have 80 percent of an ad which is negative here's the problem everybody we all hate you know whatever the thing is and at the end you go but it's okay because this brand solves it and then then bang that's the end right what we notice in our testing and what we can see is that negative emotions take a while to wear off. So if you feel angry, that emotion doesn't go immediately. It, it lingers. And so something we're often coaching advertisers to do is get that balance right. One more thing I would say just quickly is as well, when Orlando looked at the data and looked at long-term brand building campaigns, that's how it worked. When he looked at short-term spike, so in other mm -hmm. words, the activation um, more activation, short-term activity, it, it mattered a lot less. So what he noticed there was it was more important that the emotion was intense and it didn't matter so much where the emotion came from. Because, for example, if you think about a charity, like the, the, the earthquake in Turkey yeah. and Syria, you know, we see horrible, distressing scenes and they motivate us to give money, right? So mm. in the moment, sometimes negative emotion is the right tactic. And, and so we basically done lots of studies that suggest that negative emotions can have a motivating role uh, short term yeah interesting um one one other thing i'm i'm really interested in, in in your take about it but is is how have you seen and do you see ads evolve to two uh, questions linked to it is one is there an influence from for example social media like i've been seeing some really interesting ads that like in a tiktok format that that is like really working well in in some ways for some brands it's like a totally different style of expression so i i don't know if you see an influence there and then the other part is about you know we've had the whole purpose wave of ads are we going back to more creative entertaining ads or or what do you think is going to happen in, in the future they're both brilliant questions. Um, uh, look, I'll start with the second and then go to the first. So in yeah. terms of purpose, I, I, again, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know. I have a feeling that what's happening is there'll, there'll be, there's an overcorrection on purpose. And then I think people are getting confused because, you know, should a brand be clear about its own purpose? Of course it should, right? Mm -hmm. You need to know why does my brand exist? What 
service to the world does my brand provide, right? That is really, really, really important. But then brands get then confused because they then kind of go, we need to adopt some kind of social purpose to be credible to our audience. But actually what you find is that most audiences don't care about, you know, about the particular purpose you're hanging your brand on. Now, there's a little nuance to it. And um, uh, I know Peter Field did some work on purpose that got a bit of criticism, actually, because and I was in the audience, actually, when he revealed this research, because he looked at winning case studies on, on the IPA database again, and he looked at those that had a purpose and those that didn't. He found that those that didn't have purpose outperformed those that did. Now, he then got criticized because what he then did was said of those that do purpose, these are the circumstances where it does work. Now, of course, people were then read that to go, ah, but that's cheating because you're cutting the data to suit yourself, you know, and that's why he got criticized. But in actual fact, it was an interesting thing to say, if you are going to adopt purpose, how do you do it? Mm. A couple of really interesting things came out of there. Only adopt purpose if it's relevant to your brand. And it seems really obvious, but the purpose brands that we like are ones where purpose is embedded in the proposition. Yeah. And that's the reason the, the company exists, right? So I think yeah. authenticity is very, is, is very important. The second thing, and again, I've we've seen this in the System 1 database. If you're a B2B brand, people like to do business with other companies that have clear purpose and are doing good in the world. We, we in B2B land are more tuned into ethics than the general general consumer. And we found this on our, on our System 1 database as well. So purpose can work sometimes i think is peter's conclusion and in b2b it has more of a chance of working than in b2c is like the the very general thing but to answer your question i think we might see a slight correction back to the because if you look at can line winners 80 percent of them are purpose i mean it's so ridiculous and they're not just normal purpose they're like social purpose and and activism as well so Mm. they've really gone one way and i think unfortunately, you know, that may not be the right business thing to do. And therefore, what we're going to see is businesses will soon go, oh, hang on a second. So I've been sold on purpose. They haven't worked quite as I expected to. I might need to recalibrate or or rediscover what my true purpose is, not my artificial purpose, maybe is is a way of doing it. So that was your second question. They'll bring back the the furry mascots. Dancing. I know, I know, I, and you know what? This is this is back to your first point about entertain. I mean, we we, we have this phrase at System One: entertain for commercial gain. Mm. And I think people have forgotten that. That, and I mean, there's there's a brilliant quote, and I'm, I'm I've forgotten who it is, but it's in Paul Felbrick's book, uh, "How Does the Peddler Sing?" Uh, Why does the peddler sing? Sorry, where it, it talks about you know advertising is not like taking out a hunting license to go shooting. You know, uh, advertising is the permission to put on a show on a stage. And and that's that's the essence of the quote. And it is absolutely perfect because you're renting a stage in people's minds and it's down to you to entertain that mind and be remembered. And actually, any successful TV show, you know, if you look at what makes it successful, it appeals to, you know, it's funny, it's entertaining, it's it's got characters, you know, and it's very, it's the same thing for advertising. Um, so I think that, you know, we are reawakening to the to the reality that advertising is more of a popular culture, cultural kind of phenomenon, and it should be more about entertaining and less serious. Um, even though, by the way, I, I should say, I, I do, I, I would always like advertising to do good, and I'd always like advertisers to do good. So, you know, even in the pursuit of entertainment, there's no reason why you can't do good along the way. But let's let's at least make the message funny and entertaining. And then yeah. do good, do good at the same time is a much more successful strategy than trying to do good and then boring people. So we can get their attention at least. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. And the second part was more about, do you see like the influence? Do you think there's an influence on, on by social media and, and the, the whole yeah. creator language coming in? There is. No, it's a really lovely question. I mean, there's a Tom Roach quote, actually, that he and I did a bit of work together on uh, startups on TV is called scaling up without screwing up. And we had this hypothesis that said, let's look at the system one database and see how good our first time advertisers compared to established advertisers. Mm-hmm. We're just curious to see, you know, um, if you're a scale up and you're doing advertising for the first time. The hypothesis was if you started in the, in the digital social media influencer world and you're now big enough to be on TV, 
you know, have you learned from that and therefore, you know, and therefore you're going to be more successful or actually do other rules different? And it's fascinating, actually, because on average, it took four years for a new advertiser to reach the average standard of an established advertiser. That's a long time, right? Mm. And there weren't many cases where advertisers, first time advertisers got it right first time. Um, and Tom finished the, 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 the article with this lovely quote. And he said, back in the day, everyone said, don't just put your TV ad on social. Well, now don't just put your social ad on TV, you know, and, and because, you know, any media needs to be treated with respect for the the attention it gets, the environment in which you're, you're you know, and the audience in to whom you're talking to sort of thing. So so that's the slightly negative version of answering your question in, in that I, I, I think each channel, each creative needs to be designed with the channel in mind. Right. That's, the, mm, I suppose, yeah. the slightly negative thing on the positive, though. However, we have started seeing tiktok influencing super bowl ads right so we test every super bowl ad there, there are a couple of ads that are very very like tiktok ads you've got a couple they're dancing there's a familiar track it's funny you know that you know they, they're, they're copying each other and actually that's a good example of where culture changes and yeah. you know cultural you know the way we do things changes and evolves but actually the fundamental principles are system one right if you look at tiktok what does tiktok do it has music it has characters. It has a scene that unfolds. It has humor. It has familiarity. So everything we talk about as true principles of humans and how we respond and how emotion is created, TikTok is doing it better than any other platform. Mm. So although it might be new, actually, the, the, the psychology it's tapping into is as old as, as we are, basically. And, and uh, that's why they're so successful. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of Mr. Beast. I don't know if you know the 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 famous YouTuber. Like the whole thing he does is just create very entertaining, fun stuff, and he's doing it consistent, and he creates a huge audience. So I think it's very interesting to see those worlds merge into together, together more and more. Um, I think we 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 have fifty minutes on the clock, so uh, that's that's plenty. I'd love to keep uh, diving into uh, your thoughts, but uh, maybe for a next next episode. Uh, people, if people want to find you, listen to your show, connect with you, where can they go? Oh, that's very kind, Steph. Thank you. And um, well, look, the uh, the podcast is called Uncensored CMO, so you can find that wherever you get your podcasts, and and uh, do give me feedback because it's always great to hear that. Um, and system one wise, uh, my email address is. Uh, by the way, I'm John without an H, so it's J O N John Evans at System One Group We're a group. I don't know why we're a group, but we're a group anyway. So um, it does, doesn't it? It sounds global. We're taking over the world. We have many companies. Um, it, we don't actually. We just have one. But anyway, uh, it just it's it's one of those classic tactics you do when you're a challenger brand is you 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 add a little thing in that makes you sound bigger than you are so that people get impressed. But yeah. Do, do email me and uh, I'm at Twitter at Uncensored CMO as well. Awesome. Thank you so much, John. Awesome. All right. That was it for this episode. Apologies for my audio. Apparently, uh, I had the wrong mic on when we were rock recording. So podcaster to podcaster, John's voice was a lot better. Uh, anyhow, if you're interested in learning more about brand strategy you can uh, have a look at branding.courses and don't forget to check out the uh, new brand audit template in the show notes see you next episode